0: For decades now, Aldrich, one half of our cooperative ministry here, has supported the Serakoffs, Greg and Kathy, a missionary family serving in Tijuana, Mexico. In the early 2000s, the early aughts, the then youth director, the great and talented Brandon Sherr who is, incidentally, he, he planted a covenant church in Bloomington, Indiana. But the great and talented Brandonshire led an intergenerational all-church mission trip to serve alongside them for a week one summer. And so two minivans, was it three or two or three or four? Three minivans! Okay, I want to get that right. I do not want to speak falsely. Three minivans full of folks, young and old, from this congregation... Drove the 2,000 plus miles for what was, at least for me, a really transformative trip. It was on this trip that I, I really got to know some people that I had seen my whole life but never knew. People like Judy and Carolyn Hartman. This was, was, was very formative to this day. And so there are a few experiences, and so I was in college at the time. I probably had never left the country except, I think, to go to Canada. Which doesn't count that much when you like stop and think about it. So there are a few experiences as striking as entering Tijuana and then you ascend to the top of one of its many hills and you look back across the border into the United States. And one cannot help but be struck by that contrast. And all that divides you is this gigantic wall. On the one side are makeshift homes, crowded onto hillsides, many with corrugated metal roofs, all of which seem to have jerry-rigged their connection to the power supply. It's a maze of dirt roads snaking their way up and down brown hillsides that are covered with trash. And you look across, and on the other side are orderly streets, tile roofs, and green grass as far as the eye can see. And there are no palm trees in Tijuana. But across that great divide, they seem to line every single boulevard. And so separating the two cities, the two countries, is this great chasm, one which our team could cross with relative ease, but one of which was nearly impenetrable to the vast majority of those living on the wrong side of the fence. And so there's nothing like coming face to face with this degree of stark contrast that makes you ask some really hard questions. Why is there such a contrast? Why was I born on one side and not the other? What would my life be like if I were? Is this fair? Is it right? Does it have to be this way? These are questions that have no easy answers. But contrasts like this inevitably lead sensitive souls to question the way things are. And that's what Jesus does in our passage this morning. He is highlighting contrasts in life and contrasts in death to teach us something about our need for something that is beyond life and beyond death and that only he can give. So we're going to look at this passage highlighting the contradictions to see what Jesus is trying to teach us, particularly in this passage about stewardship about the responsibility and danger of wealth and the meaning of true wealth, how one can be materially rich but spiritually poor and the danger that that poses. And so first things first, when we look at this, this is um, kind of traditionally called the parable of Lazarus and Dives. That's the rich man's name, but that's just Latin for rich man. So uh, dives, you know, if you haven't taken your Latin, you'll go the parable of the rich man and dives. But it's a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. And so this is not, when we look at this, this is not where we're looking for a sort of literal picture, A, a, a Jesus' is kind of a t- television version of the afterlife. If we were doing that, we'd be reading it wrong if we were looking at it as a literal description, description of heaven, hell, and the great hereafter. And that doesn't mean that it has nothing to teach us about those things, but it means that if we read it, Too literally, we're missing the point and we'll end up asking questions like, well, can you really see heaven from hell? And like, can you really talk back and forth between the two places? And when you're doing that, you're missing what Jesus is really trying to do here. What he's talking about is not so much what happens after we die, but about how we live now and that echoes into eternity. And so Jesus tells this parable in response to the scoffing of a certain group of Pharisees who overhear him at the beginning of chapter 16, teaching his disciples a parable about a dishonest steward. So they hear Jesus telling this parable to his disciples, and they sneer at him. Because, Luke tells us, they are lovers of money. And so in response to this sneering, this mocking, Jesus tells a story. So in its context, this parable is a warning about wealth directed to people who love it and are scoffing at jesus's teaching about it this past fall we got a group of 10 or so folks together and we read a book called ask thank tell subtitled improving stewardship ministry in your congregation by a lutheran pastor who is now at lutheran seminary named charles chick lane and in this book, Lane gives a brief overview of what the Bible teaches about wealth and stewardship. And so, and so he does a whole survey of the Old and New Testament. And when he comes to Jesus, he gives a couple insights that, that we should really grasp onto for the rest of our lives. These are really, 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 really important points when we think about stewardship. And the first one, and I've said it many times, and I will continue to say it many times, that besides the kingdom of God, the thing that Jesus talks about the most is money. Money. That's important point number one. The second point is that when Jesus does talk about it, the way that he talks about it is two ways. He talks about it in terms of the danger of wealth and also in terms of the need to use one's wealth responsibly and wisely and generously. But between those two, the use it wisely and the it's dangerous, uh, it's much more heavily slated toward the it's dangerous. Here's my warning about it side of the ledger. So to summarize... Jesus talks a lot about money, and when he does, he's primarily warning people about how dangerous it is. Why? Well, let's listen to this story to find out. And just one more thing to keep in mind as we engage with this parable, and we go sort of, it's set up as the Pharisees are the bad guys, and Jesus is the good guy. And so I think it's very helpful for us to identify with the Pharisees in this passage Because if we're honest, many of us are lovers of money, especially in lieu of the fact that we live in a country and at a time when the vast majority of us enjoy a standard of living that would have been unimaginable except for the tiniest fraction of a minority of the elites in Jesus' day. It's not to say that we don't have real poverty, need, destitution in our country, in our city, far from it. It's just that, you know, especially amongst the folks who have the wherewithal to come to a sanctuary on a Sunday morning, we would fall on a global and historical scale much more likely on the rich side of the ledger. And so we who have much are in danger of loving that which we have. So Jesus is going to teach the Pharisees something about the danger of wealth because they were lovers of money. And given the realities of of where we live and when we live, we are in much greater danger of being like them than not. So with all of that said, all of that prologue, let's dig into what Jesus has to say. In verse 19, he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Verse 19, in this one verse, Jesus paints a masterful portrait of someone who is the epitome of wealth and privilege Purple cloth was highly prized. There were even rules during the Roman Empire about who could and couldn't wear purple. And increasingly it became narrowed to those who were connected to the emperor and his political power. In fact, the infamous emperor Nero passed a law that made it a capital offense for anyone besides himself to be clothed in purple. And the reason that it was so expensive is that it was an incredibly labor- and resource-intensive process to make it. Here I quote from the great Wikipedia (laughs) on how purple dye was made in the ancient world. Thousands of the tiny snails had to be found. Their shells cracked and the snail removed. Snails were then left to soak, and then a tiny gland was removed, and the juice extracted and put in a basin, which was placed in the sunlight. There, a remarkable transformation took place, In the sunlight, the juice turned white, then yellow-green, then green, then violet, then a red, which turned darker and darker. The process had to be stopped at exactly the right time to obtain the desired color, which could range from a bright crimson to a dark purple, the color of dried blood. Then either wool, linen, or silk would be dyed. The exact hue varied between crimson and violet, but it was always rich, bright, and lasting. Purple did not come Cheap. It took hundreds, if not thousands, of snails to dye one garment. And this man is draped in it. And then more than wearing the finest and most expensive clothes, this man also feasted sumptuously daily. And this word for feasting is the exact same word that's used in the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returns home and his father says, Kill the fatted calf and throw a feast. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He's lost and he was found. And the idea of this feast was that it was going to be the greatest party that anyone had ever had in this village. A once in a lifetime experience. People in the village would be talking about this day and this party and this feast for years and years and years and years. And this guy eats like that every single day. Every single day. He's feasting. And so the picture in just one verse is of a man who has everything and needs nothing. And then there's Lazarus. Jesus says, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. In the English, it, it can't quite capture the miserable plight of lazarus this word for poor it means utterly destitute and it comes from the greek word that means bent over completely bent over as if one was groveling or begging this man has nothing and it says that he was laid at the rich man's gate but that's a really nice way to say the verb which is actually he was thrown at his gate he was he was thrown on the ground like a piece of garbage And to add insult to injury, his body is covered with festering and oozing sores. A more miserable and pathetic person you could not picture. Lazarus is someone who has nothing and needs everything. And he's so desperate that he longs to eat the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And in those days, they didn't use napkins. They used pieces of bread to wipe the food and grease from their fingers and then threw it on the ground. And so he wanted to eat this rich man's soiled napkins. That's how desperate he was. But instead, all he got were dogs licking his sores. It's harder to think of a more stark contrast between rich and poor having it all and having nothing than this and the key phrase that I want to lift up in this contrast in life is this it says and at his gate that phrase and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus so the rich man had a gate which meant that his house was behind a wall which leads us to the first danger of wealth and what Jesus is warning us about. That wealth is dangerous because we use it to insulate ourselves from the needs of others and from our and from our need for others. The rich man had a gate to keep people out. We have other things. We have cars. Keep the windows up. Doors locked. And we don't do gated communities around the Twin Cities. There's like only one or two of them or something like that. But but we do have our exclusive zip codes and our zoning laws and our not-in-my-backyard nimbyism. Make sure the riff raff stay in their place. We stay in ours. And we build up walls because we don't want to see the needs of the world. Because if we don't see them, then we aren't responsible for them. That's someone else's problem. But Jesus's message, his warning, is that being a good steward means... That someone else's problem is your problem too. The classic ancient question, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Wealth is dangerous because it insulates us from others, and it insulates us from God. And by doing that, it insulates us in our own private hells that start now, but stretch to eternity See, the danger of wealth is that we will use it to build fences. And the way to combat that is to take what has been entrusted to us by God and to dig wells, places where people can receive living water, real actual sustenance and care, and the living water that is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hell is a walled fortress. Heaven has the wellspring of life the center that's why stewardship is so important because if we can't break wealth's power then we can't follow jesus and if we can't follow jesus we can't enter the kingdom and if we can't enter the kingdom we end up just where the rich man is and so jesus continues the story here's the contrast in life the rich man has everything lazarus has nothing But Lazarus dies and is carried by angels to Abraham's side, which is actually Abraham's chest. And the rich man dies and he's buried and he ends up in Hades. So Lazarus, who had nothing, now has everything. We might say that he's in heaven, and in Jewish thought, heaven is pictured as this great feast, this great party this great celebration and banquet and father abraham the great patriarch the progenitor of the jewish faith is the one who is hosting the feast he's akin to like saint peter in our imagination of heaven this day saint peter is the one who greets you at the pearly gates in that day abraham father abraham was the one who welcomed you to the feast and this detail of of being at abraham's chest this is not in the in the king james it's the bosom of Abraham. Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. The old, the old church song we used to sing. But he's at Abraham's chest. And, and, and that is so important because the guest of honor would be seated so close to the host that they could recline and place their head on the chest. And that sounds sort of weird to us, but in Middle Eastern culture to this day, signs of affection between men are much less socially stigmatized. And so Lazarus, who was thrown on the ground outside the gate, covered in sores, hungry, being licked by dogs, while the rich man feasted inside, is now the guest of honor at a great heavenly feast hosted by none other than Father Abraham. Truly many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And when I think about this, this person who was like a piece of trash on the sidewalk and now sits in this place of honor i think the uncomfortable part about this is it reveals something in me and i think in many of us we we, we, many of us functionally believe this of course none of us would be you know so stupid as to admit that we actually believe this but we functionally believe that god cares more and has a greater regard for people who are successful in this life and in this world That God has a preferential option for the somebodies of this world. For the middle class and up. For people with degrees and salaries and 401ks. People who are the pillars of the community. People who volunteer, who vote, who go to church. We never admit this, but functionally we feel like God cares more about us. But the truth that we see in this passage is this God doesn't see it that way. God has just as much love and just as much regard for people like Lazarus or people like Grace we wrote about this on the Blue Cooler Facebook page last week. They went out passing out sandwiches it, and they encountered this woman who was so drunk that she dropped trow and she was going to re- relieve herself right there on the streets in broad daylight so that, that Grace had to run over and support her so that she didn't fall on the ground, called an ambulance to get her to detox. And I think of a woman like that, and I go, oh, that poor soul. And that's it. Right? She doesn't matter to me. She can't do anything for me. She won't start coming to church, start giving, become an elder, a Bible study leader. She won't add value to my life or to society. She'll be a maker, or a taker, not a maker. So why waste my time? And that's how I, when I'm being totally honest, regard someone who could very well be at Abraham's chest in the kingdom. What this parable exposes is how my middle-class spiritual sensibilities have poisoned my heart. God, forgive me. The rich man is in a very different place than Lazarus. He is in Hades, which in the Hebrew understanding of the afterlife, it's not exactly the same as hell, though it does bear some striking similarities. It's, it's the equivalent to what the Hebrews called Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, a shadowy place where all dead souls go to await the last judgment. Although in the popular imagination, there were sort of better and worse places you could end up in Sheol. So you could kind of get more akin to the Lazarus treatment, or you could end up with the rich man. And so he's anguish, and he's thirsty, and he's in the flame, which is a sign of God's judgment. And so here he is, separated from Lazarus. He had everything, and now he has nothing. And so he cries out for relief, and he does so in a way that is so telling about what he asks from Father Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus down to give me some water. So even in death, Lazarus is still only worthy to be his errand boy. Lazarus is his inferior. Lazarus ought to be serving him because he is one of the great and good. He's dead, but he still hasn't died. His ego hasn't died. His pride has not died. And the wall that was separating him from Lazarus and him from God hasn't been torn down. In fact, the separation has become so great that it is now an unbridgeable chasm. And that's another danger of wealth. That unless we die to its power, we can never escape its grasp. We can die without dying to it. And the problem that the rich man has is that he never died the death that actually leads to the only kind of life worth living. Lazarus is dead but alive, and the rich man is just dead. And the contrast could not be greater, and the divide could not be wider. So what's the answer? Where is the good news in this passage? Is it just, you know, give your money away and care for the poor, it's not just that, but it's not not that either. You can't be a Christian if you don't care about the poor. Full stop. The solution, though, to the dark power of wealth and the dark power of anything else that separates us from God is resurrection. The rich man, he begs Abraham to again send Lazarus to do something for him. This time it's to go to his father's house to warn his five brothers about the fate that awaits them if they don't repent. That is, die to the power of wealth and live to the power of God. And Abraham's response is, they have the prophets and Moses, they have the scriptures. If they don't believe them, then resurrection won't convince them either. And for us, the reverse is also true. We have the resurrection, and if we don't trust that, then we won't believe the scriptures either. The solution to the power of wealth is the power of Christ crucified and risen. Because when we trust him, we want to follow him. When we follow him, we want to obey him, especially with our wealth. And that means that we will die to its power to desensitize us to the plight of the poor or to insulate us from our need for God. Its power to control and enslave us. And instead we will begin to use it to live and to glorify God in all that we do. True repentance leads to discipleship and disciple leads to an almost profligate generosity. In order to live generously, we have got to die and rise with Christ. Because he died to bridge that chasm between heaven and earth. And the wounds that marked his body are the sores that are on our hearts. And he descended into Hades, as we say in the creed, in order to clear it out. And he who had all the wealth and glory of heavenly splendor became poor. And he rose so that we might have true riches and abundant life that will never rust or spoil or be taken away. And so when we hear this parable, we are confronted with the question today, what do I love more? Jesus or my stuff and my status? And my comfort and the place that it puts me in. What takes up more space in your mind and in your heart and in your body and your spirit? And what do you need to do today to break its power, its grip on your life so that you can tear down walls and dig wells and the living water of Christ can flow in you and out of you? And the good news is is we're not like Lazarus. We're not in a position where it's too late. we can't say that we haven't been warned and we can't say that we haven't been shown the solution to the problem in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen please pray with me